It all started with a cotton swab. Dr. Mohan was a surgeon, and Dr. Kwok Wee Chan was the assisting as the anesthesiologist, and the nurse stood vigilantly nearby. The patient was an elderly woman who was snoring on the operating table. The date was October 24, 1991, and all was going as planned for a routine surgery. An operation was scheduled and underway at the Medical Center of Central Massachusetts in Worcester, Massachusetts. Dutifully doing his job, Dr. Chan administered the anesthesia, sending the patient into a deep, sense-free slumber. With a confidence that had been going for more than two decades, Dr. Mohan deftly began, deftly began the procedure, and everything was going well, except it seems for our two physicians. No one knows for sure what words passed between them, but the intent was clear. These men didn't like each other. And silently, the minutes ticked by, and with each passing moment, the tension in the operating room grew thicker and thicker. Whatever the reason, at one point during the operation, Dr. Chan muttered a profanity in the surgeon's direction. Almost without thinking, Dr. Mohan flipped the cotton-tipped prep stick disdainfully at the anesthesiologist. And apparently the surgeon was a good aim, because that tiny cotton swab hit its target and sparked everything that happened next in the OR. Dr. Chan retaliated. First came shoving, then shouting, then an all-out brawl between these two learned men of medicine. This line, surgical goals forgotten, the doctors escalated into a wrestling, punching, jabbing, name-calling bout on the operating room floor. And the patient? She slept through it all. <laughs> and finally, the two men tired a bit, regained their composure, got up, and finished the operation, only marginally worse for the wear. Not long after, each was fined $10,000 in 1991 by the State Board of Registration and Medicine in order to submit to joint psychotherapy for their aggressive tendencies. And it all started with a cotton swab. And we look at that and say, how ridiculous, right? How stupid. Here they were with the job of helping a patient, and here they couldn't get their heads around the thing that brought them together into join in the same goal. And churches never do that. Right? I want us to see this morning from Ephesians 4 what God has brought us together for. What he has done to bring us together. Because yes, as ridiculous and silly as that sounds, being on the outside of it and looking in, the world can say the same things many times about Jesus' church. And brethren, it should never be. It should never be. This book of Ephesians, this letter, and by the way, the letters were meant to be read as a whole. There weren't a whole lot of literate people in the Roman Empire. Um, ironically, many of the slaves were literate, and the people they worked for um, kind of depended on them to um, uh, be the learned people in their groups. But um, in the Roman Empire, there weren't a lot of literate people, and so these letters were written 
and the one who in their uh, congregation would have been one who would be equipped to read it would read the whole letter to the congregation. And uh, there was a there there's there's a special um, uh, hearing of a whole letter together, the word of God. In fact, Paul talks about it in Timothy. He says Timothy to read scripture um, that sometimes is missing. And that's kind of why I read chapter 4 altogether this morning, to get the, the setting and the context, and why I read chapters 1 through 3. We need to hear Scripture. Churches would get together and read Scripture. And then their teachers would talk about maybe some of the questions that the congregation would have from what was written by these uh, letter writers, like Paul and the other apostles, Peter, etc. here. But the, uh, the, the, this, this letter was meant to be read. The story of how Paul came to Ephesus, as you can read about in Acts chapter 19, it's kind of an interesting story in and of itself, what God did there. And you can really divide the letter into two halves, two parts here. And <clears throat> the point of the letter is how all of history came to a climax in Jesus to place everything under his feet. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's speaking to a church, turn my microphone on here, uh, that is that is. Jews and non-Jews, two groups that were divided by so many factors, it would have taken an act of God to unite them, and it did. In the first three chapters, Paul teaches about the great measures that God took in order to make these two groups into one humanity in Jesus. In the last three chapters, which we're beginning in four, here, Paul shows them how Jesus' unifying work should impact every relationship and aspect of their lives. And so if you begin in chapter 1, you have a Jewish style of prayer, verses 3 through 14, where God tells how God has made a new covenant people to the praise of the glory of His grace. Just as he promised to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12 that through his descendants all the families of the earth would be blessed. Through this particular descendant, Jesus of Nazareth, descended from the tribe of Judah, son of David, uh, the, the children of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, anyone who comes to faith in Jesus is born again into this new covenant family. And then he prays that their eyes would be even more open to what the Father has done in Messiah Jesus. Through grace, forgiveness, adoption, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of being one in Christ. Then chapter 2. Non-Jews and Jews are invited to discover all that God has shown them in grace and live out His purposes. They were dead the first few, chapters, or first few verses. Say. They walked according to the course of this world. They were under the control of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. They had their life in times past rooted in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. And then, but God who is rich in mercy. And he says what God has done. And, 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 that, and then he starts to unpack that the Jews in the Old Testament were under the Sinai covenant with Moses, Moses' law. It kind of boiled down to a, to a, a um, Ten Commandments, right? And there were boundaries and barriers, the laws of Moses, that, that kept the Gentiles out to a certain extent. But he shows us in chapter 2 that those barriers were 
broken down uh, in Christ, fulfilled in Christ the Messiah, brings through the blood of his cross one new man out of those who through faith come under his work and into this new entity of a new covenant family called the Ecclesia, the church that lives together in peace and one access to God. And then you have chapter 3, where Paul says, I'm a prisoner, and I'm going to write about what my role in this is as an apostle. And he says, I have a unique role. I don't deserve this role. I'm the chief of sinners, the least of all saints. But he says, God has, has, has called me out to do two things. To proclaim the riches of Christ. To the Gentiles, uh, the riches of Christ is glory. The truth that Christ is in us. All right, And secondly... To unpack the how the church is to be laid out and how it's to function. And he talks about that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. That he has a job to show how the church fits into the eternal purposes of God. And it's so amazing to him, and he knows that people need to grasp this, that he says up here on the screen, this is what I'm praying for God to do in us through this. And he says, for this cause, this reason, though I am a prisoner, and I am in trials here, I am laboring for you, for this cause, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family on earth and heaven is named, that he would grant you, that he would give you this, according to the supply of his riches in glory, to be strengthened with power, with might, by his Spirit in the inner man. For what purpose? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, all together, what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And God is able to do this above what you can even begin to imagine. And this is how we receive glory in the church. And so, as we looked last time, then Paul says, therefore, begins the second half here. Chapter 4. Live out the truths that God has placed them together in, in unity. And so Paul shows how the good news of the gospel should create very diverse communities that are unified by devotion of following Jesus. And unified in their devotion to each other. And so really, if we're going to boil it down here, in the book of Ephesians, we see how the gospel story affects believers' lives. God the Father had planned throughout history for Jesus to create a very diverse community of followers who will obey Him. Comprised of Jews and non-Jews, these followers form a new covenant family that God promised to Abraham. Isn't this awesome that a prophecy is fulfilled right in our midst, right here today? We, we're to live in unity as one body in our families, in our neighborhoods, and churches because of God's grace. This is always God's plan. This is always His plan to create this new covenant family of restored uh, humans who are, are new and unified in Messiah Jesus and they're energized by the Holy Spirit. And he's done this by his grace, chapter 1 says. He's invited Jews and non-Jews to join this, his resurrected life and this 
covenant family, a new unified family that's to live together in peace. And the work of Jesus unifies these believers who are empowered by one spirit to serve and love each other as they build up the church body. And so, the rest of chapter 4 through 6, Paul will challenge every Christian together, families, slaves, even masters, to take off their old humanity, to put on a new humanity, to restore them to God's image, and this is what it looks like. And then he closes the book of Ephesians with a challenge for believers to stand firm against spiritual evil that undermines their unity, compromises who they are in Jesus. So what I'd like you to do is turn to Ephesians 1, and I'm going to read a couple verses here. And I want you to note, and if you're a, a Bible writing person, note in your Bibles there, note the words that communicate this unity here. So look at Ephesians 1 and verse 9 and 10. Any words that, that, that signal the unity, both or all or together, etc. Here. here we go. Ephesians 1 verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation, that means the, this, the particular era here, of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, what are some words there that signal some of the the, the, the major thrust of the theme of the book of Ephesians that you may have picked up in hearing those. What would you say? Us. Us. Okay. Together. Together. In one. In one. All things. All things together in one. And what's what's the tuning fork again? It's in Christ, right? In Christ. Yeah, that's the, the purpose of God. Things that are where? In heaven, things on the earth. Jesus is the one who's going to bring all these all these things together. It's 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 powerful. And later on, he'll pray. In verse twenty-two, he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And now let me read a longer passage. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and see if you can hear some of the same concepts again. <clears throat> Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called a circumcision, and the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were sometimes were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. Here he's talking about Moses' law. Okay. For to make in himself up to one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross. You see these things that are, that are, he's taking these two things that human mind can't comprehend being brought together. And he's doing something supernatural through a particular vehicle every time. 
a particular coming together. By the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were far off, and to them that were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, grows to a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Alright, that one just kind of took chapter, chapter 1, 9, and 10 and just expanded it. Pretty powerful. And what, what were some of the, the, the words you noticed that communicated this, this unity? What's that? One in Christ. One in Christ. What else? Both one. Both one. Did you pick up some some marriage imagery in some of this too? This was a big thing back then. Yeah. Gentile. I mean, they were all through the Old Testament. Really, Gentile. Yeah, this would have centuries of, of, of. We're just so used to it now that it's not hitting us like it would then, right? What other words did you notice of the unity here? Bring you together. Yeah, no more strangers. Yeah, no more strangers, but what? There's a, there's a, there's a fellowness, a fellowship, right? Fellow citizens, right? No more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We come under the same house here, the house of, the house of Jesus, the, the church of Jesus Christ here. So there's, there's so much here, right? And so, Paul says, after he uh, spills some more ink here on how this is such an eternal purpose of God, in chapter 4, he says, therefore, right? Therefore. So this prayer here of grasping the love of Christ is 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 better is, is understood in a more deep way when we understood that he's brought a unity, a new man, a new entity out of us. It's powerful. So I therefore the praise of the Lord, chapter four, one, beseech I beg of you that you walk worthy of this vocation wherever you're called. What's the calling? This oneness in Christ, right? That's accomplished through the blood of the cross. That's the calling here. With all what? And this is what we this is what was kind of mind-blowing last week. We looked at being like, Paul, can't you just get in the big noble truths here? And he says, I want you to be lowly and meek and long-suffering and putting up with each other in love. Endeavoring, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. <clears throat> Um, that word endeavoring, making every effort, the idea here, is a, it's, it's, it means that we have to work hard and it's going to be hard work. Wouldn't you just like to hear Ephesians 1 through 3 and then just go to heaven? <laughs> what does he say? You've got to be long suffering, which means you're going to be long troubled, <laughs> and you're going to have to put up. Or bear one another, you're going to bear up one another in love, and you're going to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Make every effort. That word really hit home to me when this past winter, I think it might have been January or February, um, it, it, the, the, we had a, a, a bit of snow, 
and it had frozen and um, was, was kind of solid ice. And then we had uh, some torrential rains that came and they ran down my road, they washed out the sides of the road, and they ran into my driveway, and some of it went down into some of the runoff, and some of it went down uh, by, the, by the foundation of my house and was starting to come into my house in the basement. My basement was starting to fill with water. You know, an inch, then another inch, then another inch. And so I was making every effort. I mean, outside I was trying to put up, you know, things to block the flow of the water so it wouldn't go down there. And inside I was trying to pump the water out of the transfer pump. All kinds of ways to, to figure out um, how to keep the integrity and structure of this house here. I was making every effort to keep the unity of my house together here. It was It was crazy. So I began to understand what that word make every effort. It took a lot of work. It wasn't fun. Eventually, when the rain slowed down, we didn't succumb to the, the flooding. We were able to get it out, but it was a lot of work. And so it is with this concept here. There are all kinds of things trying to flood into Jesus' church that are trying to uh, the, the devil is looking to use to to absolutely divide. And Jesus says, make every effort, every effort. Now, here's the thing. This is how it won't happen. I'm going to give you an illustration. Imagine that you have an opportunity to vacation in Europe. And you get three and a half weeks. And you visit 13 different countries in Europe. You enter a country, you get your passport stamped, you exchange currencies, you learn a few key phrases uh, here to get around, you go off and you would visit. <clears throat> you wander through outdoor markets and peruse museums. You'd sample the food there. You'd um, sit on the steps of some of the cathedrals, watch the light of the town go by, and then you're off. You have a wonderful vacation. You're a tourist. That is not how you can view the church. Sometimes you can view Jesus' church, his body, as just something you take a tour of. Pop in for 45 minutes on Sunday, right? Uh, sing some songs, exchange some niceties here. And it's so much more than that, right? Our country is filled with tourist-friendly churches, right? But the life of Jesus in the body is way more than just a Sunday gathering. That's where we all can come together, but it's to be a, a life together here that would engender, would mean that I would have to uh, set myself aside and have uh, cooperate in lowliness and meekness and long suffering. I can come in here for an hour and we can put up with each other really easily, right? You're putting up with me right now, right? But here Paul's speaking of a setting here that demands more than that. So endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so he talks then in verses um, 4 through 6 about a sevenfold unity. Now, the way you need to think of it is like this. It might be helpful to, to grasp the concept here. Is imagining picking up one end of a chain, a heavy chain, a heavy anchor chain. You see those anchor chains in Rockland, some big old links there. And you look at that and the way to lift that chain is to pick up one link, right? And the rest of the links will follow here. 
And when we lift up what God has done in verses 4 through 6 over my own flesh and desires, a unity that God has created starts to be realized. <clears throat> this illustration might work better for the second audience there in um, the 11 o'clock uh, service, but since 1995, when the movie cartoon uh, Toy Story was released, Pixar has created 11 feature films, which most have become a pretty, pretty big international success. But from its beginnings as a production company, Pixar was focused on the crucial value of teamwork and collaboration. And they, they planned originally to, when they were building their, their, their site to build three separate buildings with separate offices for the animators and computer programs and management. But Steve Jobs scrapped that plan and instead moved everyone into an old Del Monte canning factory that had one huge room with this atrium in the center. Because he wanted to create a space where people would bump into each other and deepen relationships and share ideas here with the purpose here of what they're trying to create. But he took it one step further. He moved everything, mailboxes, meeting rooms, coffee bar, even the bathrooms, <coughs> excuse me, into the center of this atrium so people would be forced to interact. And initially, some of the employees complained, oh, this is such a waste of time to have to walk to the atrium every time I go to the bathroom or grab a cup of coffee. But Steve Jobs told the Pixar employees this, everybody has to run into each other. And one of the producers called it smooshing. And he added, if I don't see lots of smooshing interaction, I get worried. I get worried. And one of the directors of one of the films said, the atrium initially might seem like a waste of space, but Steve Jobs realized that when people run into each other, when they make eye contact, things happen. So it made it impossible for you not to run into the rest of the company. And it's kind of a picture of what the church life should be here. We keep running into each other here. Whether that's like you were talking about, Don, eating over at Virgin and Connie's or whatever, here of, of that interaction churches continue to have. Um, so here's what he says. There's one body. First one. There's one body. Think about your body. It shares thousands of cells. But there's a mutually shared life. Right? All the parts of the body share together. There's a power that comes in your body is sharing these, the life together through your cells. And what Paul will uh, do is expand on what he says in 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 12, really expands on this concept, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And he'll talk about how every part of the body is important. <clears throat> the foot, your toes, all the way up to... The, 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 the hands, the neck, etc. Because we're, we're, we're governed by the head, Jesus Christ. So there's one body. That's a, probably one of the most familiar um, uh, illustrations that Paul's talking about our uni here. So I'm not going to uh, push on that one yet. I want to get to the next one. And one spirit. One spirit in verse 4. One spirit. Do you realize... That there is a great, eternal, powerful, 
person who does not change, whose truth is unchangeable, that's living in you, that is also living in the person across the room from you here, whose goal is to form the body in the image of Christ and is pressing and pushing on that and guiding us in the truth so it meets, so the church meets, meets its ultimate goal. This is something that the early church really had to say, wow, about. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes upon the church at Pentecost, Peter preaches. And people respond to the preaching, saved and are given the Holy Spirit. Later on, in Acts chapter 10, God has Peter go visit this guy Cornelius. We've seen him a few times here this summer in our scripture study. Cornelius, who's a Gentile. Peter's a Jew. Right? So there's an illustration we're talking about here in Ephesians 2. He goes to Cornelius' house, and he's kind of dragging his feet to do this, but he's like, I know I should and I need to, because God told me to. So he goes, he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Cornelius and the family that he's gathered and his friends, they respond, and what happens? When they respond, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and the evidence of that in that period of time was they were speaking in tongues. They all could speak in certain languages that would be able to be understood, though those weren't the native languages. And what is interesting about that is the Jews who Peter brought with him who see this, they hear them speak in tongues, the Gentiles speak in tongues, and they say, oh, they have the same spirit we have. There's no doubt that we should baptize them now. They baptize and Peter stays with them a little longer and builds them up in the faith. And I'm assuming God puts, builds, uh, begins a church there. Listen, the person that most irritates you in your church has been given this, if there's in Christ, I'm assuming they know the Lord Jesus, has been given the same spirit and felt the same as you. And has that spirit Moving them toward the same goal. That should bring unity in and of itself. So maybe one of the first things we should think of well, when somebody bugs us, who we know knows the Lord, is that, wow, they have the same spirit in them that I do. Okay? But he doesn't just stop there. He says, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. What is this one hope of your calling? And it is this. It is this. That you and I, God's work in building a church is to accomplish this purpose. And here's his purpose. That we share Christ's glory when he returns. That is what he is moving us toward. If you are saved, he did not just save you to save you from hell. Well, that is part of it. From his wrath. He also saved you to this purpose. This purpose here of being saved for sharing Christ's glory for all eternity. The beauty of who he is. Paul says in Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory is Christ in you. John, one of the fellow apostles, says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that, in other words, we're, we're not there yet. We're, we're, this, is, this is part of God's work called sanctification, progressive sanctification, degree by degree, becoming more and more like the Son. 
what we shall be. But we know that when we shall, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. There's the one hope of your calling. The hope to be fully like Jesus together. Not just you and you and you and four of you aren't. No. The hope together here to be fully like Jesus when he returns. This is his task. And he gives the power to walk it out in his life and in Jesus and his life together here. One hope of your calling. Notice verse 5. One Lord. One Lord. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that nobody can say truly from the heart that Jesus is Lord except through the power of the Holy Spirit. One Lord. What does Lord mean? It means the, he's the ultimate authority. He's the supreme ruler of the universe that we're in submission and obedience to. He's our master. Peter said, neither is there given any other name in heaven and earth, under heaven, whereby we must be saved. What is that name? It's named Jesus our Lord, right? Savior, our Lord. Um, in Philippians 2, 9-11, through 11, <clears throat> talking about Jesus' uh, uh, servanthood and humility and his exaltation of glory, Paul says this in Philippians, just a couple pages over from Ephesians 4, he says this, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. Well, what name is that? That at this name, of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One Lord. He walked the path of Christ. He recognized your allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord. One Lord. And then he says one faith. One faith. Jude talks about the faith that was once delivered to the saints, the body of truth, of what God has done and how we're to be shaped in light of it. There is but one faith. I recognize there are, there are many Christian denominations, right? Because there's different emphasis. Some of them have put on different things here. But generally, there's seven areas... Maybe there's more, maybe there's less here, but you can think of seven areas here of some doctrinal, some truth, that, that some continuity to demonstrate the basic contours of our faith. And first is the triune God, as creator and redeemer. God's a trinity. One divine essence in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They've always existed. Then, of course, the description in Genesis 3, the fall and sin of mankind and the resulting depravity here. Disobedience of man. Unable to save ourselves. The person and work of Christ, uh, person and work of Christ, that the eternal Son of God became incarnate in the flesh through the Virgin Mary and was born Jesus the Messiah, fully God, fully human. Two distinct natures and one unique person. Died as a holy substitute for sinners. Rose victoriously from the dead. Ascended into heaven. Will return again as judge. And the result didn't offer. Salvation by his kindness, his undeserved kindness, his grace through faith. We cannot save ourselves. So we need God's grace. God's grace, pure grace. 
the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Like the Holy Spirit moved the prophets and apostles to compose Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, inspired, authoritative. And mankind, when he is redeemed, what is he? Comes the Church of Jesus Christ. Christ's body, redeemed, baptized, saints. Who by faith partake of the life and communion with God through Jesus in this new community of the Spirit. Then the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus. For he will one day, yet future, he will physically return to earth as judge and king. And all those who know Jesus will be resurrected bodily unto everlasting blessing. Those who didn't know Jesus will be resurrected into everlasting condemnation and hell. The new heavens and the new earth. You could add other things. You could fill in pencil in some of the details here. You have been given one faith. A body of truth. And then he says one baptism. One baptism. What does he mean by that? I'd like you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 12. And verse 13. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. <clears throat> What's this point here? Listen. When you became saved, God gave you a special privilege here, just like He did the person across from you or in front or behind you that was the Lord. He immersed you into a body, the Church of Jesus Christ, the family of God. So that Paul can say things like this in Romans 6, 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism in the death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Your baptism didn't do that to you, your water baptism. Your water baptism testified to the world that God has done this to you. Declared to the world. That you were made to be one with Jesus, united with him in his death and resurrection. And when you went under the water of baptism, it pictured what God did to you at your salvation. That you were united in his death and you were raised with him in his resurrection. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. In baptism, were initiated, crowned, chosen, embraced, washed, adopted, gifted, reborn, killed, and set forth. Were identified as one of God's own. He signed their place in their job in the kingdom of God. We've been born again. We're baptized. You display to the world and those watching there that you identify with Jesus and his people. One baptism. But that's not all. That's what he says. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in First Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered to bring us to God. John 14.6 says, No man comes unto the what? Father, but through me. I'm the way. Truth and life. Right? Sometimes people like Jesus, but they don't like the Father. 
And the reason is perhaps their own past experience with their own earthly fathers or others. They see the father as stern and angry who begrudgingly says, all right, I'm going to send my son and he's going to die for you. Yes. And okay, then we'll let you in. But friends, that's not the proper perspective of the father. Ephesians 1 tells us it's out of his love that he planned for this. Romans 8.15 Paul says this about the Father. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Galatians 4.6 says this, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God, through Christ. John writes to people in 1 John to a church, and he says about a certain group of them that they know the Father. What does that mean? That God the Father is always desired to have deep, eternal fellowship with us. And he delights in our restored relationship. And Luke 15, the stories of repentance, the prodigal, etc. right here, show us that the Father delights in repentance. And so when Jesus says, this is how you pray, he says, you pray, our Father, one God and Father of all, who is what? Above all? Is through all, and he is in you all. There's a mutual experience. So, when we prioritize God's kingdom and his work in his church over us as just simply individuals and what we're comfortable with and what we like and don't like, then what happens is we have to say with John the Baptist, I must decrease, and he and the body must increase. So I wonder, let me just put it here on the on practical level here. What are, what are some groups of people in your church that you might disagree with each other about a certain certain thing? Ephesians 4.15 later on will tell us that growth in Jesus requires speaking the truth in love. And think about some of those people who may have come to mind. What happens when truth is not spoken in love, or love is not spoken without, or love is spoken without truth? And if you consider the needs of the person or the group that might have different views from you, and what truthful, loving words do you think would benefit them today? Words that we saw in Ephesians 4 build up and are not corrupting, corroding words. How do you deal with anger and frustrations with people? particularly people of your own church body. Do you deal with it appropriately? Appropriately is not by just sweeping it under a rug. Appropriately is the pattern pattern that the Lord Jesus has given us. When we are fractured, what we're actually doing is making us more vulnerable to the devil's work. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. Can you reflect then on Jesus' example of sacrificial love? You read Ephesians 
He doesn't just say, forget one another. What does he say? What enables you, enables you to forgive one another? When you see yourself as a forgiven sinner, even as God and Christ have forgiven you. Who needs your forgiveness today? Have you prayed for them? General William Westmoreland was one for doing a platoon of paratroopers in Vietnam. And he went down the line and he asked each of them a question. How do you like jumping, son? Love it, sir, was the first answer. How do you like jumping, he asked the next. The greatest experience of my life, sir, said the paratrooper. How do you like jumping, he asked the third. I hate it, sir, he replied. And why do you do it, asked Westmoreland. Because I want to be around guys who love to jump. And friends, when there is an engendered enthusiasm of what God has done in the sevenfold unity, it helps verses 1 through 3 become enjoyable as well. It's hard, but when you see the purpose and the goal, like those two doctors did it, you can engage in the game. I'm going to leave you with this last thought here. Psychologists say when kids develop, specifically looking at their play time, their play time, there's six stages of play. There's unoccupied play. This is the kid who's just observing not playing. They look around, they're observing the world around them, but they're not necessarily the people in it. And there's solitary play. This is a kid who plays alone without any interest in interacting with anybody else. Then there's onlooker play. He's observing others nearby, but he's not playing together with them. And then there's parallel play. A child plays, he might be building Legos, as the other kids are building Legos here. He's doing the same activity as others around him at the same time, but he's still not interacting with them. He's just kind of doing his own thing. Then there's associative play. And this is when a child is playing side by side with others. Just think of a bunch of kids around the Lego table here. He's engaging at times, but he's not coordinating his efforts with them to build something common. And then there is the mature stage of development. And by the way, all these have their own time and their own place. But there's maturity is cooperative play. He's playing with others while interacting with them. And he's interested in both them and the activity. Now, parallel play and associative play are a lot alike. During parallel play... The kid's playing next to another child, but he's not interacting, engaging, or talking. Right? And it's when he gets to associative play here that he begins to focus on the other person playing and not just his own play. And this is when you get pretty cute YouTube videos here of kids who are playing together. They're starting to interact with each other. But the Lord wants us as believers to engage in, to use the metaphor, cooperative. Or playing with others, interacting with them with a common purpose and goal, or building it with them together. They put the blue brick on, I put the red one on, to continue that Lego metaphor, etc. here. And that is what the sevenfold unity of Ephesians 4 3 through 6 enables us to do. When we remember that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you.